Hello, everyone. You're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Monica Jean, and you are tuning in to In the Weeds with the Michigan Field Crops team. And today you are stuck with me. But I also have a guest co-host. Um, I, I believe most of you are very familiar with her. Sarah Franzak is here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and let Sarah introduce herself. And then we're going to pass it to our guest, which is Dr. Spronger. So thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm. I'm Sarah Franzak. I'm an environmental management educator with MSU Extension. I am based in Hillsdale County and I work in the entire state and I help farmers make good environmental decisions on their farms. And Christine, thank you for being here with us. And um, would you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Christine Sprunger. I am an assistant professor of soil health at Michigan State University. And I'm actually just newly arrived to Michigan State. I just started in August. Um, Prior to starting at Michigan State, I was an assistant professor of soil science and rhizosphere ecology at Ohio State University. I started in 2018. So very much interested in all things uh, soil science and soil health. Um, I'm just very glad to be back in the state of Michigan. So rhizosphere, that's like a soil level. Which level is it? It's really the intersection between roots and soil. All right. About all of the biological, chemical, and physical processes within um, the root and soil interface. Okay, thanks. Um, So... You're here at MSU, you work out of KBS. So you wanna tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm based at the Kellogg Biological Station. I'm also a part of the Department of Plant, Soil and Microbial Sciences. Um, And here at KBS, I am largely focused on research and then I have a small teaching appointment um, and then also a service appointment. Um, But part of my role here at KBS is to be a, a co-PI on the long-term ecological research uh, trial that's funded through the National Science Foundation. And then I'm also on the steering committee for the newly established long-term agroecosystems trial um, funded by the USDA. So it's just super exciting to be a part of two long-term trials that are focused on thinking about how we can sustainably produce food while also thinking about uh, important ecosystem services that agricultural systems can provide. So last fall, I went out uh, and I I looked around at some of those things. I thought those were really interesting. Could you tell me about some of the specific projects your lab is working on? Yeah, so we have quite a few (laughs) projects, uh, both in the LTER and the LTAR. So I guess I'll talk about the LTER first, um, since that is a trial that was established in um, 1989. And we started working there more intensively um, back in um, 2020 and 2021. Um, So, um, you know, the whole premise of the LTER is really to understand how um, different agroecosystems can not only produce food, but also contribute to really key um, ecosystem services. So everything from 
carbon sequestration, to um, nitrogen retention, to the mitigation of greenhouse gases. Um, and one of the things that hadn't really been studied within the LTER is soil health indicators, which we'll <laughs> definitely talk quite about a lot about um, this morning, but um, the concept of soil health hadn't really been tested within the LTER. And so my lab has been looking at a variety of biological health indicators and chemical health indicators and also physical health indicators across the entire LTER. And what that does that is that gives us a wide range of um, understanding in terms of how things like conventional agriculture or no-till or uh, reduced input or biologically based systems um, relative to perennial cropping systems and unmanaged systems, how all of those things influence various soil health indicators. And then, oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, that, I was just going to say that's great. We've really needed um, this kind of topic area coverage at MSU Extension. And I understand that You've, of course, been at OSU, but you actually have been working in Michigan still. Um, have you found anything, any practical advice for Michigan farmers for the work you have been doing, especially on that hot topic of soil health? Yeah, so I guess this is a good time to mention that I actually did my PhD at Michigan State University um, between, I guess I was here from 2010 to 2015. And as part of my dissertation work, um, I wanted to test soil health on actual farmer fields. So we worked with Paul Gross and several other people in Extension to um, help us link up with uh, farmers across Michigan. And we actually just went to farmer fields we asked farmers to pick um, four different fields that they were most interested in. So we asked them to pick a field that they felt was their best field or a field that they were having trouble with. Um, so a more, more challenging field and then a field um, that was kind of more unmanaged. Um, and so for example, some farmers had like um, alfalfa or um, even like an alleyway that they wanted tested. Um, and then the last field was like a choice field, just anything um, where farmers wanted more information. So some farmers had like, you know, they were testing a certain amendment. They just wanted to know how that might be influencing soil health. Um, so it was really great because it gave farmers um, agency in picking the fields. Uh, we kind of just stood back and let them um, decide which treatments um, were most important to them. And then we came through and uh, tested um, kind of at the beginning of the growing season and um, did a range of, of soil health testing. So everything from different kind of indicators that reflect carbon, um, different indicators that reflected nitrogen cycling, uh, things like physical characteristics, things like compaction and texture and soil aggregation. Um, and then we brought, you know, conducted all of those analyses in the lab and then we didn't just provide soil health test reports to these farmers, but we also sat down with them, walked through every single test. And then we also just interviewed them in terms of understanding, you know, does this make sense to what you're seeing on your field? Which indicators are useful? Which actually shouldn't be tested <laughs> because they weren't useful? And um, also, most importantly, you know, do these um, kind of tests align with 
you know, your kind of own perceptions of your fields. And so we learned a lot about which indicators were most useful, especially in, in determining and detecting differences in soil health between their best and most challenging fields. Well, I have some preconceived notions, I guess. I've done a, I, I'm, so I want to know if I'm wrong. I really enjoy like the nitrogen mineralization test. Um, uh, I think, I feel like you can get some pretty good and it's easier to run, right? You can do that at your pretty easily at your own farm, uh, in your office, whatever. Uh, is that one that you would consider a good option or is, do you have an, a different suite of ones? Like if a farmer called and was like, Hey, I want to evaluate my field. What would you suggest? Yeah. So the kind of three, um, indicators that, we've seen consistently work in terms of like smaller kind of on-farm studies. And then also like um, they've detected differences across the LTER. And then they've also um, detected large regional differences um, that we've also done in terms of soil health assessments across the Midwest. So the three that we really focus on, um, and then I'll add an, a fourth, but the three that we focus on uh, soil respiration, so just a 24-hour assay that reflects really, um, you know, that fast turnover um, pool of carbon. And so this is really helpful in terms of detecting, one, how large your pool of carbon is, and then also um, just how quickly nutrients are turning over in your soil. Um, and we just think that it's a really um, helpful indicator of overall soil health. Now with that um, comes, there's a lot of variability with, uh, with soil respiration, just because it is this 24 hour assay. Um, and so that can be um, challenging when we're really trying to get consistent measurements, um, you know, with replications and um, really trying to detect differences across a wide range of treatments. But I think it does um, a really great job of indicating um, what's happening with your soil organic matter pool. And it's more sensitive compared to the organic matter pool test that you get from commercial labs, just because that's looking at your total overall organic matter pool that can take sometimes decades to change. Um, and then we also use permanganate oxidizable carbon. Uh, this also reflects um, a pool of carbon, your active pool of carbon, um, but I would say it's a little bit more steady and it reflects a slightly more processed pool of carbon. So it actually can be a, a strong early indicator of um, carbon sequestration. Um, we've definitely seen that across the um, LTER, for example, where like the perennials and unmanaged systems have, you know, magnitude differences in pox relative to um, the annual row crops. And All right. The I just want to double check real quick. So the first yeah. one's a paddle test, right? That you were talking about. So the That's first one, the way that we do it is we just in, um, inject um, a CO2. It's like a, basically a reading of CO2 where oh. we take an injection from the headspace of a jar and then we put it into a Lycor machine, but it's really looking at the CO2 coming off of your soil. So soil respiration tests that you could do with like a Solvita paddle, would that exactly. be Exactly, yeah. Okay, exactly. okay. Yeah. all right. The Solvita test is, is the same. Yeah. Okay, um, and then the second one is like the different colors in a tube, right? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I just want to make sure. A chemical reaction. So that one is definitely much 
harder to try to test like on an act like on your own, right? You'd want to send that to a commercial lab and get that or a, a university lab and get that tested. Okay. And then the last one, I'm sorry, I cut you oh, off because I just want to make no. sure we were okay. It's it's important to know the distinction between the two. And over time we've realized that they're actually reflecting slightly different pools of carbon, which is hmm. also um important. And I think people are like, well, which one should we use? And I'm like, you should use both because they're telling you different things. Um, and then the third is soil protein. So for a while, it's been a little bit challenging to find a soil health indicator that reflects um, nitrogen cycling. So of course we can focus on ammonium and nitrate and that is, those are great indicators for inorganic nitrogen um, and plant available nitrogen. Um, but what is, Harder is thinking about the organic pool of nitrogen, um, and that's what the soil protein pool does. And this organic pool of nitrogen is important because it's really thinking about the nitrogen that's really driven by soil organic matter processes. And so again, we found that this is a really sensitive pool of, of nitrogen. It can pick up differences across management practices in a way that, say, um, total nitrogen, um, you know, if you send it to a commercial lab and um, they just do a combustion analysis, um, that isn't as sensitive. So again, soil protein, um, we think it's um, a good, strong indicator of um, just your, your pool of nitrogen that's being influenced by organic matter. And you can um, get that done at any common soil health lab, or is there one in mind that runs this? So yeah, the Cornell um, Soil Health Lab will run it and various university labs run it, but it's not really offered by commercial labs. And that's part of the reason is we're still trying to learn more about this test. Um, and one of those ways in which we're doing that is we're testing it across, for example, the LTER and really asking, you know, how does this pool of nitrogen compared to ammonium and nitrate? And um, is it really serving as a sink or a source of nitrogen? Those are still things that researchers are, are trying to understand. Now that we know more about evaluating soil health, right, and you just said those three, one I noticed wasn't on there, which I think we used to recommend pretty regularly as a way to track your soil, but maybe maybe I need to stop doing that. And that is organic matter that comes back on your nutrient soil analysis yeah. or your CEC if you happen to go to a lab that doesn't have organic matter. Is that accurate? Like, should we be... I know it comes with it, so it's tempting, yeah. right? Like, you've yeah. already paid for this. Should you? Yeah, I mean, organic okay. matter is really the master variable and really an important kind of indicator to understand, you know, your overall, um, you know, carbon in your soil. So let's say you have like 2.2% organic matter and you have a sandy loam soil, that's pretty standard for what we would expect. The difficulty is, is when farmers are trying to improve soil health and maybe they are testing every three years and they're you know, doing everything that you should for soil health. They're incorporating no-till, they're experimenting with cover crops, they're maybe adding compost or some other type of, of uh, carbon source. And they don't see a difference in that organic matter after three, six years of soil testing. And that's where it gets frustrating for farmers when they're thinking, you know, I'm doing everything 
I should in terms of improving soil health and this organic matter value is not moving at all. And that's where these other soil health indicators that reflect carbon processes become important because they do shift from year to year. And then you can, um, it can be helpful to farmers to see that improvement, to know that they're headed in the right direction. And a perfect example of this actually was when we were conducting those interviews with Michigan farmers. And we showed them the organic matter test from the commercial lab across their you know, best and worst field. And then we showed them soil respiration and pox. And this now makes sense. You know, we've been trying to move the needle on organic matter and nothing changed. So I've like almost given up on implementing these other management practices. But when I see this other soil respiration and, and pox values that helps me in terms of knowing that we're doing the right thing. And so that's where I see the, the real value of these soil health indicators that are just more sensitive to management. That's cool. So it just tells more portions of the carbon story, kind of like what's happening. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're out there and you're trying, don't become too frustrated if <laughs> your organic matter um, is hasn't budged because you might if you're really invested in the soil health evaluation for your farm you it sounds like it would be worth paying a little more and getting some of these other things done exactly yeah, yeah. so uh, just shifting gears here I know that uh, you do some research on nematodes and um, I, I think a lot of people think of nematodes as a pest. So can you tell us a little bit more about nematodes and why we should care about them? Yeah, thanks for asking about nematodes because that was the fourth indicator that I wanted to mention earlier. Um, so nematodes are microscopic, uh, non-segmented worms. And when people ask, well, how, how small is that actually? It's about one five hundredth of an inch. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty microscopic. You have to use a microscope to see these really important soil organisms. So the reason why we're so interested in nematodes is that they are key um, players within the soil food web. So you're right. We most often think of soybean cyst nematodes, but that's just one portion of the nematode community. The vast majority of nematodes are actually beneficial soil organisms. And they're also specialists. So we have nematodes that only feed on bacteria. They're called bacteriovores. We have nematodes that only feed on fungi and they're called fungivores. Then we have um, plant parasitic on plant roots, also a different variation than those soybean cyst nematodes. What was that last one again? What was it called? Uh, they're plant parasitic. So plant they parasitic. Okay, plants. you cut out a little bit. Sorry, oh, Christine. Yeah, they yeah. feed on, on plant roots. Okay. And then... Um, the fourth group are predators. And so they actually feed on each other, which is really interesting, a really interesting dynamic. Um, and then the fifth category is omnivores. And these are nematodes that can actually change um, their feeding preferences depending on the environment. So one day they might feed on bacteriovores and another day they might feed on a fungivore or on, on fungi. And so, um, yeah, it's very neat in the way that they, um, the way that they drive the soil food lab is because they're specialists. And 
when we think about the ratio of these different types of nematodes, we can actually learn a lot about the health of an ecosystem. For, so for example, um, bacteriovores, um, if a system is dominated with bacteriovores, that can often reflect a more disturbed system or a system that has received a lot of inorganic fertilizer. Whereas a system that is dominated by predators and omnivores, that can reflect a healthier system and a system that has greater organic matter cycling, for example. And so um, we think that the nematodes should be incorporated within um, the soil health kind of framework. Um, and I'll just note that I didn't even start thinking about nematodes until a Michigan farmer asked about soil organisms and why we didn't have soil organisms on our soil health test report. And this is a really important point because, you know, we're, soil health is supposed to be this kind of holistic approach to soil testing. And it's supposed to focus on biological processes, uh, chemical processes, and physical processes. And, you know, until recently, we really relied heavily on um, things like soil respiration that reflect biological activity, but we're not directly measuring soil organisms. And so we think it's really, really key to start thinking about measuring soil organisms and integrating um, things like nematodes and other um, microscopic organisms within the soil health framework to understand more about, you know, the living part of soil and how that can be um, important in terms of understanding overall soil health on a farmer's field. So if I'm a farmer and I want to get my nematodes counted and typed, how do I do that? You have to find the four or five labs across the country that do so this. So th the one we submitted MSU through Marisols would not include the good, or does it? So she, she knows how to identify nematodes. She's actually on my student's PhD committee, um, but I don't know if her lab offers that. It just takes longer. She might just focus on soybean cyst nematodes. Um, but I think there's a lot of detrimental ones. And then she might, if I remember correctly, looking back at ones that I've, I've actually done some, um, she had me add nematodes onto some of my cover crop research on potato farms. Nice. And I uh, think she does give you a pool like she's like, all right, there's um, a large pool of these other ones, but I probably didn't know what the heck I was looking at. So maybe we need to kind of like- you talk about it. That's yeah. good. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. And I would just say, so a long-term goal for our lab. So we're just getting started up here at Michigan State, but a long-term goal for our lab is to offer soil health test reports to farmers. And we want to include nematodes as part of that because we that's how serious we are in terms of wanting to offer um, these types of tests to, to Michigan farmers across the state. Since they couldn't see, I, my face lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> and so did Sarah's. That's very exciting because I think when we're, it, it just helps us with the conversation when we like get a call about a field that's not doing as well or, uh, evaluating certain practices or um, a common one is like, I've been doing these practices for a while. How do I know when to like adjust my nitrogen fertilizer rate or, you know, like some of those scary steps that you're worried you could impact your yield. So you want to do it in the most, you know, accurate way possible. So this would be a great fill in is, um, just curious as you've evaluated, is there a system in that, 
you know, you've evaluated fields in Ohio and Michigan and is there a system that you've seen where there's been the most positive numbers of these nematodes and the best like carbon pool testing or anything like miraculous you have found? <laughs> yeah. So again, we're using um, the LTER to really understand how these communities of, of nematodes shift, um, you know, within row crop agriculture all the way up to unmanaged systems. And that's kind of the beauty of these long-term trials is we can test these things uh, first on university farms and then go um, on farm to, to give farmers the best information on what these tests are actually telling us. So what we're seeing so far, and again, this is kind of preliminary data that my grad student is working on right now, is that um, we see a lot of those predators and omnivores in the kind of perennial-based systems, and then we see bacteriovores more dominated in uh, row crop systems. But one thing to note um, when we're kind of looking at all of the... Um, systems uh, combined, the nematode communities within the no-till system seem to differentiate themselves from all other uh, systems. And so we're wondering what is going on in a no-till system. It could be a good thing. It could be, um, you know, no um, disturb soil disturbance, or it could be a bad thing because with a no-till, you have to somehow control for weeds, and it could be excess herbicides and pesticides that might be influencing those nematode communities a little differently. And so another kind of question that we're starting to ask, also farmer-driven, because farmers have asked us about this in terms of like, how do you know things like pesticides and nematicides where you're trying to uh, target soybean cyst nematodes, how does that influence the beneficial nematodes? And we actually don't have a good answer for that. So we're starting to do some smaller um, kind of laboratory-based studies to be able to address, you know, what do these kind of external inputs do for, um, you know, influencing these beneficial nematodes? Very cool. Sounds like we'll have to have you back. So... <laughs> We're going to touch on another one that's my favorite. <laughs> Many people don't like it. It's one of my favorites. And that's climate change. So as you've been doing this work, and obviously carbon, carbon sequestration, very important around the conversation of climate change and soil. Is there anything um, you would like to share about that? Yeah, so we've done quite a lot of work and continuing to do a lot of work around climate change. And we really have kind of two camps in terms of like the different research projects that we're trying to, to do within the realm of climate change. The first is just thinking about which systems are most effective at climate mitigation. So things like carbon sequestration. But then the second is thinking about which systems um, are most resilient to threats of climate change. And so really thinking about climate adaptation, um, which I think is really, really important for um, farmers across Michigan to, to think about. So just quickly in terms of climate mitigation and carbon sequestration, um, we conducted a study also at KBS across um, the GLBRC, so the Great Lakes Bioenergy uh, Research Center long-term trial funded by the Department of Energy. And we really wanted to understand which systems were most effective at building soil carbon. And we used um, soil health indicators to do it. 
Um, and so for those of you who might not be familiar with the GLBRC, this is a nice study that looks at, uh, again, row, row crop annual systems and then um, row crop systems with cover crops. And then you move into your monoculture perennials and then you have um, perennial systems that are grown with other perennials, so your polyculture systems, so more diverse systems. And what we found is that both soil respiration and pox um, had, there was, you know, significantly greater values within the um, polyculture perennials relative to the monoculture perennials and the row crop uh, annual systems. And so what this tells us is that the, when you have both perenniality and diversity incorporated into an agroecosystem, um, you can substantially increase carbon um, and sequester carbon over time. And that's, again, one of the important things about these long-term trials is we can really see how these pools of carbon are changing over time. So that's one story. Yes, please. Yeah, and, and so like, just checking your organic matter again would be relevant because I do sometimes hear people say like, we don't have a good way of actually testing carbon sequestration. And so I just wanted to be kind of direct about that question. And yeah, I would say it's, it's measuring your carbon pool in a couple different ways. So definitely get that organic matter value test from your commercial lab. And then also think about submitting um, your soils to a soil health testing lab and getting measures on permanganate oxidizable carbon and then also that soil respiration or the Solvita test. And having um, and tracking those numbers over time, I think is really, really important, mm -hmm. um, especially with pox. Respiration is tougher because it will change based on if it rained more heavily the day before um, or if you have a drought. Um, but that pox value, I think, is a little bit more stable and definitely a good indicator of how your carbon pool is moving from time to time. So, I mean, respiration is uh, how much those little buggies are breathing, right? So it's just like us, like, did you go for a run today? You're breathing harder, yes, right? Exactly. Are you sleeping? Your breathing is, yeah. So like, we just have to think about it, that there is, like, it varies depending on activity and the um, environment, like what what's happening, rain, dry, different stuff, right? That is such a good point. And like, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, sword, because it's, it's so sensitive that it does pick up differences, you know, in, in terms of management. So it can be real, a really good marker for, um, you know, moving the needle towards better management, but it's also so sensitive that it picks up um, abiotic factors yeah. <laughs> like rain and, um, you know, increased temperature. So we just have to be careful in how we interpret that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but when we do soil respiration and pox together, we actually have some calculations to determine how they kind of play off of each other. And that can also help us in terms of understanding of a system is actually more driven by um, the permanganate oxidizable carbon values, or if it's driven more by soil respiration or kind of mineralization values or processes. Um, so again, uh, as scientists, we can kind of help interpret um, what those two values are telling farmers. Okay, so I want to like wrap, like 
to make sure I'm clear. So or, or the take home is clear. So organic matter, that pox test, and then, oh, wait. Did I just mess up? What was the last one? Uh, and then the, the soil respiration. Respiration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not enough coffee. Mm -hmm. um, those three. So the pox, respiration, and your organic matter is not just good for soil health evaluations, but also if you're a farmer, like looking at the, um, you know, this carbon market stuff, and but you yeah. maybe don't want to sign up yet. But I try to encourage them that if they're doing some of those positive things now, that they should take note of it, just like how they take note of their, um, uh, like herbicide applications, right? Like try to track those changes because they may be very useful if you, they will be useful if you yeah. decide to sign up in a year or something. Yeah. And so those are the tests that you would encourage. That's what I would encourage. And also, um, on that point, we just received a, a grant from the Environmental Defense Fund to actually determine which soil health indicators are most effective at um, predicting soil carbon sequestration. So what we're doing is we're teaming up with different LTAR sites and LTER sites across the country. We're actually going back in time. So a lot of these sites have archived samples where we can run these three tests um, and we can see, you know, which uh, test was most accurate in terms of predicting the present day carbon sequestration. And so we'll be able to then inform both policy and farmers on which soil health indicators are to be used when quantifying carbon for carbon credits and carbon markets down the road. I love it. So we'll have to have it back for two. Yeah. <laughs> Nematodes and carbon. Yes. <laughs> well, I really appreciated you coming on with us today, Christine. I learned so much about soil health and soil health testing. Um, and I, I really loved talking with you. Is there any last takeaways you want to share with us today? Yeah, so there are two kind of takeaways. So um, the other kind of point I want to make on climate change is we're also doing a lot of studies on the impact of drought and flooding, and also understanding how those extreme weather events impact soil health. So this is important for two reasons. One, we just want to know how these soil health values might change um, with, you know, more intensive weather events. But we also want to use this as a way for farmers to understand how values might shift with these climate um, events. And so that they can have more informed um, soil health testing uh, when these events might occur. Um, and I think it's just really important to think about how soil health can be used as a tool for climate adaptation and thinking about how um, systems can stay resilient and sustainable in the face of climate change. Um, so again, stay tuned for that kind of research that's coming out um, within the next year or so. And then um, lastly, I just want to note that on our website, sprungerlab.com, um, we will soon be launching a soil health testing um, option for farmers. So we are very much interested in working with farmers across Michigan, um, and there are going to be numerous kind of research studies um, that we want to do on farms. So just please stay tuned um, for, for more of that information. So you're looking for cooperators? Exactly. Yeah. So if you want to work with Christine in her lab, um, you can go to her website and find out about that soon enough, right? 
I'll put that website in the um, comment section. So, and we'll definitely be sharing those opportunities with um, the MSU Extension as well. Excellent, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Monica. Thanks, Christine. I think we had a great yeah, thanks, uh, time today. And thanks see you on the next one. For listening. Yes, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>